going to wrap up the book of James um, tonight. Uh, we left off in chapter 7, seven chapter 5, verse 7. Um, last week we, we talked about um, judging and fun stuff like that. Um, this week is the last week, so maybe next time we'll do something a little less um, toe-stepping on. <laughs> I don't plan and set out to do that. It just seems to happen. But the Bible, uh, sometimes it's, it's a hard book. Uh, it shows us where we lack. shows us where we need to improve. And sometimes, uh, sometimes it hurts a little bit. Um, Jesus' words, they cause some to rejoice and they cause others to go away sorrowful. Um, I feel like lately there's been a lot of hard stuff. Um, I don't know why that is, but that's how it is, I guess. Um, or we can either you know, get upset, or we can we can take it and internalize the word and grow from it. And that's that's all that's all I really want to do is grow and be more like Jesus. You know, that's supposed to be what we're trying to do and. You can learn a lot about people by how they respond to the Word of God um, when their life doesn't necessarily line up with it. And the reactions thereof. Um, sometimes, unless we don't agree and we tune it out and we have selective hearing, but whatever. People are still going to do whatever they want in the end. Uh, all we can do is teach what the Word says and pray and study and apply it. And if somehow I've rubbed you the wrong way and how this has been presented. Um, I'm sorry for that. Um, I know I'm not perfect. I'm still learning, and I hope you know that my heart is in the right place, and I love everybody here, and I want um, to help us become the best Christians that we can be. Amen. Be a stronger church, stronger families, uh, stronger individuals in uh, community. So if I said anything hard lately... Um, I'm not trying to tick everyone off or anything. That would be foolish. Anyway, so James chapter 5 is where we left off. Um, verse 7, we'll start there. And it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruits of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Draweth nigh. So James, this little part before this, he had been talking about the rich oppressing the poor again, which was kind of a theme throughout the book. Um, he stops that for now and he turns the attention away from this. And he kind of goes back to what he said at the very beginning when he talked about um, trials and temptations and enduring trials and temptations and being thankful um, for these types of things that happen, these kind of things that happen in our lives and, and be patient. And he brings it like full circle. He starts with it and he ends with it. And he brings it back to, to patience. And he's, so he's still, he's still kind of talking to these poor folks that have been oppressed, um, that weren't getting their wages paid that they were supposed to. Um, and he's saying you endured hardship, you endured heartache, you endured all this stuff, but be patient because someday you'll be over it. Someday Amen. we'll move past this. Amen. Yes. Um, you know, I've said it before about patience, but, you know, 
If you're ever working a job and you're having a bad day, just keep going because eventually the shift will end. Yes. And eventually you get to go home. That's what I always told people. It's like, just keep going. We're all going home. Eventually we're going to close. We're going to get out of here. Yes. Just keep going. Don't worry. Just keep doing what you can. Because every bad day ends and every new day is fresh with no mistakes in it yet. And there, So James talks about this and he gives another metaphor. He talks about a husbandman or a farmer. He says that he plants seeds and he waits for them to grow. There were two children. Um, Davy and Dora were their names. They were twins. Davy was very um, rambunctious, had a hard time paying attention. Dora was very calm and quiet and, um, I don't know if I have any children like that. Julie may be the closest. Um, Lucy's fine right now. But, but, so there's these two children and they both planted a little garden and Davy just couldn't wait. And he would go out every day and he would dig it up and see, why aren't my seeds growing? And Dora's just like, ah, taking her time, doing her thing. And, and at the end, Davy's stuff never grew because he was just digging it up every day and yes. looking, oh, it's got to struggle, put it back on. And then had no, he's like, where's my, where's my carrots, whatever. He was all worked up and checking every day and ripping it up and it didn't allow it to grow. And Dora, she just let hers grow and, you know, she got some food to eat afterwards. But Davy, he didn't because you can't speed up the harvest. You can't look and, you know, rip it all off. Come on, where's it at? We can't, you can't speed it up. Seasons need to come and go. Weeks need to go by in order for something that you've planted to grow. Amen. And um, there's an early rain, which is the spring rain, and then there's the, the autumn, the latter rains, which is what happened before the, the harvest. And both of these things needed to happen or um, the harvest would not happen. You needed both of these things. You needed to go through all these seasons for the harvest to, to um, take place. And the farmer, he would plant the seed, and the farmer does what he can. But the farmer has to wait in order to get that harvest. Time needs to do its work. Time needs to pass before, before the harvest is ready. So these oppressed brethren that he's writing to, they've done what they can. They've, um, they've worked. They've done their job. Honestly, they've done a hard, a hard job. And... And they're just being, they're being ripped off and they're not getting paid by these people that are supposed to pay them. And they took the matter to God in prayer instead of taking matters into their own hands, which is the key in this, this thing. So now, since they've taken that to God, now they have to wait um, on God's timing for the results. Just like a farmer plants a seed, he has to wait. So they've given it to God and they have to wait. And there's a lot of times that we try to rush God, we try to force him. We say, okay, God, I'm giving this to you. What, you got 24 hours? Or if this doesn't happen by the end of the week, I'm out of here. Or whatever. And we, we try to force him to, you know, it never works. We know we pray and we're like, well, it's not happening, happening fast enough. I'm going to go fix this myself. Like David is digging it up. I'm going to fix this. Why isn't this happening? And we, we go and we try to fix it ourselves. And I'll show them. I'll tell them. Right, because it's easier to ask for forgiveness, they say. Just go do whatever you're going to do and whatever. No, that's not the right way. But it's not trust when you, when you ask God. You say, God, here, I'm going to give this to you. And then five minutes later, you're like, ah, I'm going to do it myself. 
and try to fix it on our own. That's not trust. If we give it to God, we have to let him deal with it. And God works in his own time. As frustrating as that is sometimes. When you can't give something to God and then take it back, you know, plant a seed and then rip it up. Or, you know, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to grow. We don't try to go behind his back and do it ourselves after we give it to him. We either trust him or we don't. We either let him be in charge, let him be God, let him be king, let him be our, our shepherd, or we don't. There's nothing more freeing than when we put something into God's hands and let him deal with it. Sometimes it takes longer because he has to undo some of the damage we've done. Amen. Right? You know, we pray for people to come back to God. Sometimes it seems like nothing's happening, so we're like, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to witness to them. <laughs> I remember. Uh, I always pray for my father to come back to church. My mother was hard on him. Um, whatever. They have a history, obviously. And we were... Um, one Sunday morning, I think I'd stayed overnight. We were watching hockey or whatever. Saturday night, you know, hockey night in Canada. And then my dad, with my dad, my mom came to get us, take us to church. And we're like, oh, dad, come to church, come to church. And he's like, no. My mom's like, what's it going to take? A lightning bolt from heaven? Ah, and just like. <laughs> he came a couple weeks later, but. <laughs> but sometimes we do. Stuff like that. We're like, okay, we're going to pray for someone. They're like, what's wrong with you? You know you need to be. And we flip out and then we say the wrong things. And it takes a while to undo that damage. Right? <laughs> I put my mother under the bus or anything. But it's just one I thought of. We end up getting frustrated. We end up you know, fighting with these people that we're trying to win or whatever. And you know, we say things we shouldn't. And we say things that we regret. And then we wonder why it's not happening. You know, and there's a time to say things, obviously, but we need to trust God or not. That we have to make up our mind if we're going to trust Him or not. James said in James 1 and 8, he said, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So when we're constantly going back and forth, I trust you, I don't, I put it in your hands, I take it back, you know, nothing good is going to happen. When we constantly go back and forth, all we do is make a mess. Consistency is an important part of a Christian walk. Yes. The same with farming. You know, you need to water consistently. You need to weed um, consistently. You need to check the soil. You need to fertilize. You need to put in work consistently if you're going to get a good harvest. I say, get a good, a good crop. You know, if we are inconsistent with our walk with God and trying to live for Him, we're not going to grow the right way. We're not going to produce the healthy fruit that we're called to produce. Patience is a big part of that too. James started off his letter with that. And we need to be consistent. We need to worship every time we come together. We need to pray consistently. We need to study consistently. We need to stop wavering and going back and forth and make up our mind if we're going to live for him or not. Amen. If we're going to trust him or not. We need to be patient. We don't need to throw in the towel because what we're praying for, what we're looking for isn't happening right now. Keep praying for your families. Keep on believing. Be faithful. Verse 8 says, Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. So these people did the right thing. They brought 
their need, their brother's situation to God, and now they just need to be patient and establish their hearts. Once again, referring to the double-mindedness. You need to make sure, put your heart the right way. Establish your heart. <clears throat> he said that coming of the Lord draweth nigh. That's a good reason for us to be patient. It's a good reason for us to be consistent and single-minded because he says Jesus is coming back. When? I don't know. But the early, the early church expected it every day, and all I know is that we're closer now than they were. It doesn't tell us when, because if we knew, you know, we just all wait till the last minute, do whatever we want, try to sneak in at the finish line. Yes. Yeah. Or, or, you know, people at that time when the rapture or whatever is going to happen, we'll just they're the only ones that have anything to look forward to, you know. So he doesn't give us, you know, the, the time for these reasons. And it's a good antidote for discouragement. When you're discouraged, just remember, Jesus is coming. When, why do I keep believing? Why do I keep trusting? Because Jesus is coming when I feel down, when I feel out, when I don't, you know, I just feel overwhelmed. Jesus is coming. And in the end, all this stuff that I'm facing, all these problems that I'm going through, all these things I'm struggling with aren't going to matter right. when I'm in the presence of Jesus. All these things I get hung up on aren't going to matter when I'm in his presence. So he's saying you need to be patient, establish your hearts because God is coming back. And then he warns against uh, holding grudges. In verse 9 he says, Grudge not one, another, one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. So James at the end kind of just starts rapid firing stuff out here, like Paul would do with some of his epistles. Just and starts giving them all these things. Oh yeah, don't forget this, and this, and this, and this, trying to get it all in there. So he says, you know, don't hold grudges. Even if you're mistreated, he's talking to these people, even if you've been mistreated, don't hold grudges. In the new King James Version, it says, do not grumble one against another, brethren. I'm from the human point of view, it's normal and natural to grumble about people that have been treating us bad. It feels good sometimes to say things about others. That's our sinful nature. From our point of view, it's natural to do that. We've all probably done it. Better boss. Or a leader. A parent. A pastor. Justin Trudeau. But he tells us not to grumble. Well, I like grumbling. It feels good. But it's the wrong thing to do. When we grumble and we hold grudges, we're doing God's job. We're holding on to it instead of letting him deal with it. He can't deal with it if we're holding on to it. He can't deal with that grudge. He can't deal with that bitterness. He can't deal with that hurt in our lives if we're going to continue to hold on to it. We need to let go of it. You know, say, God, fix this. But we don't let go. He can't take it and he can't fix it. We need to let go. It's all, you know, just, just let go. If we've taken our case to God, we need to leave it there. If you've given God something, you put something in his hands, we need to leave it there and let him deal with it. He gives an example of the prophets in the Old Testament and their patience. In verse 10, he says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. So, when we're waiting for God to deal with something that we've put in His hands, we're waiting on an answer, if we've been wronged or mistreated or anything like that, it's a hard thing to do 
And it seems reasonable to, to grumble. It seems reasonable to take things in our own hands and deal with it ourselves. Um, but these people that James is writing to, these oppressed Jews at the time, and to us, you know, they weren't the first people to experience suffering. He's reminding them, you're not the first person that's gone through anything. A lot of times we, you know, we get so wrapped up in ourselves and we think, oh, I'm the only one that knows, I'm the only one that's gone through anything like this. You know, but we're not, and we're not going to be the last either. Amen. Whatever we're going through, somebody else has probably gone through it before, yes. and probably after us. There's a whole long line of prophets throughout the Bible that suffered for the cause of God, and they did it patiently. Most of them, nothing, people didn't turn around when they preached to them. Most of them, they just, you know, they got mad at them. Elijah had to live in a, you know, had to run from the queen, and Jeremiah got thrown in a pit, and all this stuff was going on. You know, they, would, they were doing what God wanted them to, but they were still suffering through it. So he reminds them that they're not the first people to suffer. They're the first ones to go through anything like this. And even though these prophets were called and anointed and appointed and spoke on behalf of God, they still suffered, which is a, something we don't like to think about. If godly people have suffered throughout all history, we don't need to be shocked if it happens to us once in a while. Because life is not all roses and rainbows. And if these prophets could be patient, then so can we. These prophets, they didn't have, you know, relationship with Jesus like we do. And they could be patient. They would go years without feeling anything from God. They would go years without hearing anything something. And they could be patient. So, so can we. He gives the example of Job next in verse 11. He says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. And I've heard of the patience of Job and I've seen the end of the Lord. That the Lord is very pitiful and of, and of tender mercy. <clears throat> So endurance and suffering, when we go through them, they bring, a, they bring their own reward. Endurance of trials and tribulations in chapter 1 told us that they bring patience. And long-suffering is a sign of being filled with the Holy Ghost. Long-suffering is a sign of maturity. It's, one of the, it's the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22-23, we know this. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So this is one of the things in our lives that we should be producing if we're following Jesus, if we're filled with the Holy Ghost, if we're living for Him. Long-suffering is one of the things that we should be producing. You know, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith. We all want those. Those are all great things. Meekness, some people take it or leave it, whatever. Temperance, yeah, that's good. But long-suffering, nobody really wants to do that. Not so much. But if we're filled with the Spirit, if we're living right, we should be producing that. The Bible says that you shall know them by their fruits. If we're not producing these things, then there's something wrong and we're not growing. Job teaches us that people don't always get what they deserve. Job did nothing wrong, but he lost it all and suffered just because. But God knew and God cared and in the end he came through because Job was faithful because Job was consistent because Job was single-minded and he made up his mind a long time ago that I'm going to continue to live for God even though he, if he slave me I'm going to continue to live for him yeah. <clears throat> so if we do that if we stick to it and we let God deal with our 
things that we put into his hands, our troubles, our tribulations, our whatever is going on, and we lay it in his hands and we let him deal with it, we will be okay in the end. But when we, when we try to fix it on our own, you know, messes come from that. Verse 12, he said, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any under oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay be your nay, 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 lest you fall into condemnation. <clears throat> we need to be people of our word. The Pharisees of this time were known for swearing oaths to try to make them look better, to make them look um, credible, like people do now. You know, I swear. I swear it's true. You know, I worked with this lady in every story she told. She started with that. And I was like, why are you doing that? Like, should I not be believing most of this stuff? Why are you, like, trying to convince me? Um, usually people that say that, they're not known for telling the truth. You're trying to convince them that this, is, this thing I'm saying right now is actually true. The rest of this stuff, I don't know, but this stuff I'm saying right now, listen, this stuff is true. And if we're honest, and if we're true, you know, we don't need to do that. People should believe what we say because we believe it. Or because we say it, sorry. Because, because of our integrity, because of our reputation, because of who we are and, you know, how we live. Some people say things, you're like, I don't know about that because the reputation that they have. And you're like, probably not going to believe that. Some people are known for stretching the truth and getting facts muddled and things like that, you know. But if we're just true, you know, we shouldn't have to try to convince people. We shouldn't be swearing and saying, oh, this is, this is how it is. I have a friend, or I had a friend, and um, they would tell stories. And, you know, I was there when the story happened, and then he would relay the message to someone else. And all the characters were switched around, and the words were switched around, and but that's how it happened according to him. And I'm like, no, that he didn't. I said that he didn't say that, and I didn't say that like that. I said something else. I said some of those words. So, you know, he just was didn't really pay attention, just kind of whatever. And when that happens so long, people stop believing what you say. And that's when you get into this mess where you're like, well, you know, I swear this is true. I swear it. I swear, you know. So we need to be people of our word and let every yes be yes and every no be no. If you're going to, you know, speak the truth. He gives us, um, instructions next to the afflicted, to the merry, and to the sick. So James's letter at this point is coming to an end. Um... And he's, he's emphasizing on prayer and as, as prayer, sorry, on prayer as a right response to suffering and sickness. So once again, there's been a theme throughout James with how we use our tongue, how we speak, you know, don't judge, don't say these things, you know, build each other up, watch what you say, your tongue reflects your heart, and all this stuff. He's been going through the whole letter, this kind of thing going through. So he tells us how to use our mouth and use our tongue the right way when we're being um, afflicted for suffering and sickness or anything like that. Use our tongue the right way and pray. 
The correct way to use our tongue is by praying, by singing, by telling the truth, by edifying, by building up and teaching. These are all things James has been teaching the whole letter. The wrong way is you know, swearing, grumbling, selfish requests, evil speech, uncontrolled words, all these things. He's been teaching us the whole time about what to say and what not to say. In verse 13, he says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. He tells us how to respond when we're suffering and when we're cheerful. If we're suffering, go to prayer. Not to the phone, not to the Facebook, not to the grumbles, not to the murmurs. Not to retaliate or lash out or fight or whine or complain or throw a hissy fit or a pity party. Pray. If any is afflicted, let him pray. There's anything going on? And if you're being attacked, if you're sick or whatever, that anything's happening against you, pray. <clears throat> if a kid is suffering, a child is suffering, <clears throat> he'll cry out. And what do you do? Generally, you can tell if your child's cry is real or not. They've all got their fake ones. They've all got their real ones. They've got the, my feelings are hurt cry. They've got the... I'm not getting my way cry, they've got the I just fell off the top bunk cry. <laughs> you know, they've got different cries. I'm actually heard cry. <clears throat> and generally you can tell. That there's so we'll listen. And you hear the cry, and you're like, ah, they're just fighting. They'll work it out, let them work it out. It's good to whatever. And then there'll be that other cry. And they're like, I gotta go and step in here. I gotta fix something. Yeah. They're actually hurt you step in and you deal with it. But you only know because of the cry. Because a child will cry out when something's going on. And that's how we know that there's a problem. That's how we know that there's something I need to step in or I need to kind of let them work out on their own or whatever. Yeah. You know, Lucy hurt herself the other day, got a nice gash in her eye. Still don't quite have figured out what happened. We were, I was over here. My wife was upstairs reading a book or something. And as far as I can tell, she hit a dehumidifier. She fell and tripped. I don't know. But, but there's a cry that comes with that. Because, you know, they cry all day long, fighting, whatever, disagreeing. But there's a certain cry that you're like, oh, this is for real. And, you know, we took her to the, to the doctor. We got it fixed up. <clears throat> But there's a certain cry, and other times she'll cry, and it's not the same, it's different. And sometimes just her feelings are hurt, or she's frustrated or something. But God knows our cries. Amen. God knows, knows our cry. And sometimes maybe we feel like he doesn't care, because we have different cries, just like children. You know, there's sometimes we're just complaining. There's sometimes we're just whining or upset or our feelings are hurt or something. And sometimes he kind of lets that go because we need to grow up a bit maybe. Amen. Suck it up a bit. Amen. But he always hears. And when we're suffering, there's a different sort of cry that comes. There's a, different, there's a different sound. And he answers to that every time. He responds to our suffering. Not always our whining, not always our complaining, not always our frustrations. But if we're suffering... He answers. When we're afflicted, pray, and he will answer. Romans 12, verse 17 to 21 says, Recompense no evil, no man evil for evil, provide all. Sorry, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much liable you live peaceably among or with men. Dearly beloved, 
Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And Paul says the same kind of thing, but longer. He says, if you know, you're going through something, give it to God and let him deal with it. When we try to deal with it, you know. Yeah. It's our job to live peaceably among men. So if you give something to God, let him deal with it. If you're afflicted, pray. Something's going on, pray. If you're cheerful, he says, sing psalms. Praise him. I used to sing all the time at McDonald's, at work. I cannot sing well, but I didn't care. And the people would often ask if I was under some sort of influence or something like that. People in the drive through would be like, is that guy okay back there? <laughs> like, yeah, he's just weird. People were confused, but I, I was happy. Yes. Yes. And when we're happy, we're cheerfully says, sing. Yes. So it's good to know, you know, you read something and you've been doing it right the whole time. It's nice. <laughs> the correct response to suffering and tears is prayer, and the correct response to cheerfulness and thankfulness is praise. Yes. Proverbs 17 and 22 says, A merry heart doth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. Yes. A merry heart does good, so... You know, let our hearts be merry, you know, sing, let it out. It does good, it affects other people around us. They might tell you to stop, maybe. It'll affect them one way or another. A psalm necessarily, or the psalm is a song, not necessarily, you know, out of the book of songs. Some of those are kind of awkward to sing as praises, like, Where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? I'm so happy right now. And not just any psalm, but a song unto God. A song of gladness. And then he says in verse 14, If you're sick, call for prayer. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. All through the New Testament, there's you know, all these different stories of people praying for the sick. Jesus, the disciples, all through the book of Acts, everywhere you know, people were praying. It wasn't an uncommon thing. But this verse speaks to the sick person. It says, as any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. If you're sick, it's part of your responsibility to ask for prayer. Now, sometimes we can't because we're too sick or unconscious or whatever. You know, the family can ask. But, you know, um, we're not mind readers. We don't know what's going on all the time. And some people get mad. I've had other ministers tell me that people just flipping out of them because they didn't come pray for them at the hospital. And they're like, well, did you let anybody know? And like, well, no. It's like, okay. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, we're not, you know, mind readers or anything. You don't know what's going on all the time. <clears throat> so some people, they get upset. Nobody visits them in the hospital, but they never told anyone they were there. So it's our job if we're sick, it says, to call for prayer. To invite um, the ministry or whoever to come pray, the elders to come pray, to start that thing. That's a step of faith from ourselves as someone that's sick. Um, it's not always the elders' responsibility to call and ask you if they can come and pray. If you're in the hospital, call me, I'll come. If, if you're sick, let us know. 
But this whole, well, they should know thing isn't based on the Bible. So, you know, if you're sick, let us know. We have a prayer line you can call. Pass it on. We'll pray. Come pray, whatever you need. But you need to keep people in the loop. I've had people that were sick, you know, some, and nobody told anybody anything, and other people seem to know what's going on, and it was hard to deal with, and you don't know. So I can't read minds um, on Facebook right now. So, <laughs> But when they pray for the sick, they use an oil. In the Old Testament, people would anoint with oil for a specific purpose. Um, and it says, in the name of the Lord, so again, Jesus, obviously, is done in Jesus' name because there's power in the name of Jesus. So when we anoint someone with oil, we're anointing them for a special purpose. And that instance would be healing. That's why we do it. And we do it in the name of the Lord because there's power in the name of Jesus. Verse 15 says, in the prayer of the faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. If he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So faith results in action, which is another theme all through this book. In this instance, faith resulted in prayer. And because they had faith and because of the name of Jesus, he answers. The sick was healed because of the faith and because of praying in his name. <coughs> so we have faith on behalf. So there's faith on behalf of the sick person that's requesting prayer. And then there's faith on behalf of the person that's praying. And together, that's how it gets done. Confession of faults. Verse 16, he says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, get up in front of the whole church and tell everyone everything you've ever done wrong. It's more like, you know, if you've got something between you and someone else, you know, let them know. So that... They can forgive you, you can forgive them, and then we can move on, and we can be healed and repaired, and our relationship can be strengthened, and we don't need no grudges or anything. Like he's mentioned earlier, we don't need all this stuff between us. Now, if I've got something wrong, a uh, problem with you, then I should go to you. If you have a problem with me, come to me, and we'll fix it. We'll pray together and <clears throat> move on and be healed. The second part can be translated as the righteous person's prayer is very powerful in its effectiveness. The emphasis here is not so much on how to pray, but on being a righteous person. Prayer is effective because of how you live. If you're righteous, you're living right, you're living by faith. And when we live by faith, prayers are effective. When we live by faith, we pray with faith. And our heart and our attitude are right. So our prayers are effective. I'm not saying that God won't answer your prayers if you're struggling, obviously. But I find people that are just steady all the time, living for God consistently. There's some living by faith when when they pray. There's something to that. <clears throat> he gives an example of Elijah, verse 17 and 18. He says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So he's writing to the Hebrew, um, early church, the Hebrews, right? And they knew all about Elijah, or Greek Elias, and God used him in incredible ways. <coughs> he took him to heaven early, 
But Elijah was a person just like we are. And he struggled with things just like we did. Elijah had extreme highs and Elijah had extreme lows. And we had fire fall from heaven and then he went into depression and ran and lived in a cave because he was worried, does God just take me? What are you doing? Why am I here? I wish I was never born. Like he's just up and down just like you know, we are sometimes. But God used him to work miracles, not because he was superhuman, because of his faith and his sincere prayer. First Kings 17 and 1 says, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain up these years, but according to my word. That's a pretty bold thing to say to the king. There's not going to be any rain till I say so. That takes a lot of faith, guts, you know, believing. And then in chapter 18 and 1, he says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So God answered this prayer. Three years it didn't rain because he said so. That's pretty incredible. But he was a human like us. But if we prayed like he did, with sincerity, and we live righteous, live right, um, and live with faith, we can expect the same sort of results. <clears throat> the last two verses of James deal with our responsibility to fallen um, believers. He ends this um, with an appeal that we be concerned about our brothers and our sisters who have Fallen. In verse 19, he says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him. Again, and James uses the word brethren to remind them that he's their brother, that he loves them, that they're you know, important to him. And he doesn't say this like, this may happen. He says it like it's something that will happen. Because people, people wander. It happens. We all know somebody who was here, no longer is. But he gives hope. And he says, you know, they can come back. <clears throat> and the truth in this, the, the truth, you know, air from the truth, the ultimate truth is Jesus, obviously. And it goes along with Galatians 6 and 1. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such and one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So Paul takes it a little further. He says, you know, don't you know, do this meekly. When you, when you work with somebody and you're praying with somebody, you're trying to help restore somebody, do it meekly. Not, don't go in, you know, I'm better than you, whatever. Because, you know, it could happen to you, he says. Lest thou also be tempted. Don't be so confident. You know, it could happen to you. You think of Peter. He's like, I'll never forsake you, Jesus. Oh, yes, you will. By the time this night's over, you're going to do it. For the rooster crows three times. You know, we can't be that confident. It can happen to anyone. Happen to you, it can happen to me. It's easy to look and compare and frown down upon someone, but the truth is anyone can wander. Anyone can be lost. No one is so high above sin or temptation that... They can't fall. Nobody's so saved that they can't be tempted. I've seen pastors, preachers, saints, pillars, and the church, old and young people, 
walk away. 60-year-olds, 70, 15-year-olds, families, whole families, you know, friends. The last few years, I've seen a lot of people and families my age leave the church. People I grew up with, people I went to youth with, people I rode on buses with, people I went to Bible school with. I've seen pastor backslide. I've seen my youth pastor walk away. I've seen friends. People old enough to be my parents. Parents of my friends. It can happen to anybody. The devil is a roaring lion looking to devour. So we always need to be on guard. We need to stay close to Jesus and guard our hearts. Verse 20 says, Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So he ends it with this. He says, If you are involved in helping restore a fallen brother or sister, know that you helped save a soul for eternity. And if we know this, you know, it should encourage us to constantly reach out, constantly pray for people. The person who wanted obviously believed at one point, but now they're a sinner. Now they're not the lost sheep. And if they don't turn back, they'll be lost for eternity, which is a scary thought, which is probably why my mother said that to my father. You know, out of frustration and some sort of love and concern. Because he already knew the way he wouldn't say that. Yeah, no, he wouldn't just off the street. Yeah, my father, he used to preach a little bit, I guess. But, um, so if this person doesn't turn back, they'll be lost. And it's a scary thing. So James... He ends this letter showing how to demonstrate our faith in the most practical of ways by, by taking steps to turn a wandering brother or sister back to truth. And that ends the book of James. Some intense stuff in there. Let's all stand, please. I hope you enjoyed it. I don't know. <laughs>